Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yo, technology, what is it all about? What COVID has forced asking the question about is, is the mere process of touching and interacting with thousands of things, you know, physical objects and then hundreds and hundreds of people is that by itself a materially unsafe thing to do my gut would be yes hello and welcome to danny in the valley thank you for tuning in i'm your host danny fortson and i hope you're keeping safe and healthy in these uncertain crazy times We've had a little glimmer of light here in California this week. The governor has announced, uh, just announced a roadmap, if you will, to get back to normal, whatever that normal looks like. Uh, Now, six things that need to happen or goals that need to be met. We haven't met any of them, but even talking about a path or charting a path out of this bizarre world we're living in, bizarre, scary time, is encouraging. But for now... We remain on lockdown and we soldier on. And in that spirit, I wanted to talk about robots. Yes, on the program, we have Damien Shelton. He is the founder of Agility Robotics. It's a company based in Oregon that makes humanoid robots that can pick up a box, walk up your steps, drop it off at your door, and then fold back up into a little square like a transformer and put itself back in the trunk of your car or your boot if you're in England. It sounds wild, but it's real. Um, You should check out the videos online, Agility Robotics, it's right there. As you might have guessed, as a company that makes capable delivery robots in the age of a pandemic, Agility has suddenly become very popular. So I wanted to catch up with Damien to talk about their robot, which is called Digit, to talk about what it can do, why they built it to be weirdly, really human. And what I mean by that is that it's not like super strong. It can lift a 40 pound box, for example. Anything beyond that, who knows, it might have to go to the robo chiropractor. So we talk about those design choices, making robots in the age of COVID, and how long before machines will be doing what your Amazon delivery driver does, or what Shelton calls the last 50 feet of delivery, i.e. the car to your doorstep no job is safe people anyhow i hope you enjoy the conversation we have one more pod coming later this week on the normal day and time but now here is damien shelton founder of agility robotics enjoy i mean if one positive thing out of this entire brouhaha is we all get really good at setting up av equipment exactly well thanks for taking the time damien i appreciate it of course happy to do it How's it going? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's we're, we're adapting. So we've been fortunate that in Oregon, where the primary office is, that the uh, stay-at-home order was at least reasonably flexible. It was sort of phrased as, here are a set of positions that we don't think are amenable to social distancing, you know, restaurants and hairdressers and stuff. 
fortunately, on the other side of it, they said, you know, if you're in a non-essential uh, business, but you can demonstrate that you have an effective industrial hygiene role in place, which we fortunately do, that you're able to keep operating. So it's uh, we have some of the engineers teleworking and uh, the robot builds are still ongoing. It's been a, an interesting adaptation. Things are still going. What was your previous startup? Uh, completely unrelated. So I did a 3D scanning company. Uh, oh. So Pittsburgh is, uh, you know, one of the nicknames is Three Rivers. Uh, it was called Three Rivers 3D. We did first a very expensive uh, 3D scanner for engineering and then a lower cost 3D scanner for scanning people's feet for uh, doing shoe orthotics. And that's what ultimately got us acquired. So it's an interesting pathway because it's sort of the, the classic robotics thing where you develop a really cool widget and you sell it for a lot of money. But then it turns out what you make all your money on is the, the super stripped down <laughs> version of that, that, uh, you know, is much, much cheaper. So by the time I left, we were, as our best guess, the U.S.'s largest 3D scanner manufacturer. It was entirely for this specialized thing that you would stand on. It would scan the bottom of your foot and then transmit that off to the uh, company that made sure about it. Back when I was living in London, I did a piece on 3D scanning or 3D printing rather. And I'm told that there's somewhere in the world there's a, a 3D figurine of me. That, you know, you step into this thing and they they circle around your body and supposedly basically make a, a Danny Force in action figure, although they never sent it to me. I'm just keeping my eye out on eBay. I have a plaster mold of my foot around somewhere. So when we were doing all the debugging, we had a, uh, a special effects artist that actually ended up working for us for a while. And she uh, cast my foot with a silicon mold and then turned that into plaster so that rather than having to stand on the thing over and over for debugging, we could just scan my weird plaster disembodied foot. So, that's <laughs> so you obviously you've been doing robotics for a while. So what's been the kind of the evolution of agility? Because I've seen the videos and they're kind of, without being offensive, a little bit kind of creepy looking, a little bit Boston Dynamics uh, robot dog style. I just love to understand like, how you started, where it's got to, because they do seem like they're quite capable, which for robots is kind of rare. So Yeah, we, we would hope that they come across as capable and not creepy, <laughs> but I, you know, certainly, certainly can't you know, argue against that, except to say that um, you know, we've put a lot of time into thinking about the aesthetics of them. But in terms of the evolution, yeah, the premise was no more or less complicated, basically, than the idea that we would replicate to the extent possible to do it the physical abilities of a person as sort of a first approximation. And that's different than a lot of the arguments that have been made, say, by other robotics providers, including ones that have been deployed commercially for a very long period of time, which tend to be focused on, say, the, the superhuman capacities of, say, robot arms and assembly line, either from a weight capacity, like you see on the really big robot arms that you know move car engines around, or on the very small end of things, the, you know, the, the ultra-high-speed pick-and-place stuff that you see on electronics assembly lines. And so that was the, the genesis of Agility, was saying, okay, well, the work that Jonathan had done in his previous academic life, showing that you could approximately, from sort of a very first principle standpoint, get a robot that had approximately the physical capabilities as a person, that was an independent product line in and of itself, so computer programming. And uh, I mean, this is probably a stupid question, but the, to what end? Why why recreate human capabilities in a robot if, as you're saying, you would think that the attraction would be to be able to create things that humans can't do or that are kind of superhuman? It really depends on what you're trying to do with the robot. We are very competent generalists as humans. The fact that with some amount of training, and I, I don't want to, you know, minimize the amount of training it would require. I could drive a tractor trailer truck. Similarly, I could be retrained to pick vegetables in the field or I could be retrained to be a robot 
company CEO, right? So there, there's this <laughs> flexibility argument. Now, if you're approaching a very specific instance of automation, that my problem is I have this engine block that needs to be moved from one spot to another rapidly and at high speed with a minimum of, of human safety concerns in a warehouse or a, in a factory environment. Clearly, for that single purpose task, you can outperform it. But in terms of a generalist approach, trying to just match but not necessarily exceed human performance gives you the flexibility to do a lot of different jobs at about the same rate as a person. Obviously, modulo the software side of it, which is probably the largest single area of ongoing development. And so what is the... I know we're talking about robotics here, so we have to be a bit careful with our words. But what is the quote-unquote killer app for <laughs> for what for the robot you guys have built? Ultimately, the relationship we've been most public about is our partnership with Ford Motor Company. So we have been doing R and D work with them for the last uh, about a year and a half. Um, initially, uh, like we had shown last summer, both in a video release that we did and then live demos at the Ford City of Tomorrow event in Los Angeles, uh, was last mile delivery. So basically uh, positing, say, five or 10 years down the road when you have an autonomous taxi fleet and you want to be able to recoup the downtime of that equipment, being able to get out and use that for something other than transporting people. So if you size the fleet for peak rush hour, then you have a lot more autonomous taxis available at non-rush hour to do extra stuff. And the way that most capital equipment works is you're only making money if you're using the, the equipment. It makes you overall able to offer a cheaper human transport product if you're also transporting goods. The challenge there then is if you have a vehicle, hopefully it's not delivering to your front door because that, you know, at least at my house would involve driving across the front yard and crashing up the steps. So the the quote unquote killer app for that is doing the last 50 feet of the last mile for last mile delivery. Now at CES this year, we showed a, a first mile application. So in a warehouse task, you have say a, le a legacy warehouse that's not a new shiny one. And so in order to get automation to that environment, you have to be able to move through an environment that was sort of objectively designed for people. So at CES, we showed a vehicle load demonstration as opposed to an unload. More broadly, I would say the application that we're most focused on is sort of logistics broadly construed as opposed to narrowing in on a, a hyper-specific application. And our first immediate go-to-markets are not going to be last mile because of the safety and regulatory concerns. On-premises automation tasks so I've seen some of the videos that you guys have done. It is so the couple that are just coming to mind, it's like, you know, car pulls up, it stops, the trunk opens, or as the, the boot opens, as they say in the UK, and then like you kind of your robot kind of unfolds and then you have something that roughly looks like a human body, and then it picks up a box, drops it on the front porch, and that's the function. So when thinking about that, like let's Talk about Amazon, where they have like famously all these robots on wheels who are moving through these warehouses. Why is something, you know, in a logistic sense, if you're talking about the first mile, at least initially, what can this do that others can't that are already being used, these robots that are on wheels and seem to be quite efficient at moving stuff around? So in the first mile case specifically, it really gets down to whether the facility that you're operating in was designed for automation or not. To go back to my 3D scanning days, we had outbound material flow in a busy week of somewhere between 50 and 100 medium-sized boxes for the 3D scanners. And you might ask the question, could we have installed a wheeled robot to do the loadout for us? So when the FedEx ground driver showed up, could a you know a companion wheeled robot have hopped out of the vehicle 
with our FedEx driver and coming and picking the stuff up. In our case, because the facility that we were in was actually a office environment, not a loading dock, you had to both cross a reasonably high threshold with the double doors and then also go down over a curb. So it's possible to imagine, you know, wheeled vehicle solution might somehow adapt to that self-balancing or something right. like that. But it certainly was designed for legs. Um, so in, in that kind of first mile environment, it's difficult to imagine deploying at any sort of national level scale with a wheeled solution. Now, inside a purpose-built logistics center, would you choose legs over wheels, all things being equal, if you were loading you know, 4,000 pound pallets of bottled water or something like yeah. that. No, I would choose an automated forklift. The point that we're trying to make is when you have an environment that was designed for people, where you implicitly or explicitly make a bunch of assumptions about the operating characteristics of the environment, that will often, but not always, lead you down the path of legs being the optimal solution. But that's certainly not necessarily true generally. Again, you know, automated forklifts exist for a reason. The Amazon Kiva robots that move around the pick and yeah. stuff in those warehouses. It's an excellent example of an engineered environment where the, both the floor surface and the, the shelving is engineered. Just given to where we are present day, just the way your the company has been developing, is it a kind of case of a pre-COVID and a post-COVID kind of world in terms of, I don't know, demand or what people are asking your robots to do or the interest or anything? Is there kind of a do you think this is going to change the trajectory of your company or has it already? I would say a positive thing that has happened recently from us, and you know, obviously this is embedded in an overall very negative so- social health and uh, economic tragedy, but in terms of the demand for last mile specifically, we have had some conversations recently about very large uh, partnerships and you know, are, are pushing on some of those. Uh, I would say more holistically though, the, the basic social and economic pressures existed before COVID. If you look at sort of access from a, a home perspective, something like 1% of U.S. homes are disabilities accessible. Yeah. And so if you use that as a proxy for wheel vehicle access, that means you can only do autonomous wheel vehicles to something like 1% of U.S. homes. Before COVID, the pressure was on the, the hiring front. We were at close to full em- employment it was difficult or impossible to fill job roles in a way that was economical. And then post-COVID, we've now suddenly flipped to a world where the sort of the classic robotics, dull, dirty, dangerous tasks now include tasks that may have been dull and may have in some cases been dirty, but would not have necessarily been considered dangerous yeah. uh, six weeks ago. I suspect what we'll see out of this, given the success that UAVs have had now operating in the medical delivery space for some time, that there will be a greater public perception of value of automated logistics of all kinds. Whether or not it reduces you know, injury rate because of a, a rampant virus is hopefully a temporary condition, right? I, I would hate that to be for that to be a selling point. It's obviously a very negative thing to be stepping into. But more generally, I think, is the question of, is this a task that society wants to have people doing? Both from, a again, the pre-COVID case, is it the best use of people's time and money, both from an employer and an employee standpoint, to be doing jobs, you know, which I think a Verge article last month said are basically jobs that are under the control of a robot, but mm. a human the end effector, right. or do you do you want to you know automate that where you can and have people doing more high value roles? 
to your point around kind of this societal expectations or societal expect you know acceptance of something like a drone dropping off a covid test in your backyard how far along do you think we are on the spectrum of people being okay with just robots walking down the sidewalk carrying a box and being okay with it because especially yours as you say it has legs and arms there's a certain kind of it just gives people the willies a little bit yeah i would say that it that has not been our reaction in person and right. that's one of the benefits of moving a bit more physically like an animal or, or like a human is that if you catch it out of the corner of your eye it doesn't read as odd to see it in person we have a a pretty funny video that was shot uh two and a half three years ago at this point with some of the early testing where we were walking on a riverfront trail uh in oregon and you have people who kind of if they're not super paying attention will just walk by robot and ignore it because it's not some you know anime battle mech stomping its way along <laughs> it has about the same motion that if you catch it out of the corner of your eye it reads as a person the onus is on us a to to make sure that we have a way of you know addressing the human robot interaction problem so right now with the version of digit that we're at we are addressing functionality but not interactivity you can use it safely in an indoor or outdoor environment where you're constraining the access and where the people who are around the robot are aware of its capabilities, both positive and negative. A downside to building a very, you know, hopefully charismatic bipedal robot is that people read a lot onto it as a result of both their experience with people and also their experience with sci-fi robots. And the fact of the matter is you can't have a conversation with Digit right now. It's not C-3PO. One of the things that we actually added to you know, the predecessor robot, Cassie, pretty early on was this idea of sort of background movements. I mean, do you have like, I don't know, psychologists on board or pe- like human behaviorists in there who can kind of understand or kind of try to say, well, you know, these are the few of the things on a, on a kind of basic biological level that you and I as humans make us comfortable or uncomfortable and you should try to kind of do something like that so they're kind of more accepted? Yeah, uh, great question. And certainly on the biomechanical side of that, yes. Now, I would say that the broader question we have just started to address, we've written some uh, grants supporting university researchers, but specifically starting to look at the HRI side, human-robot interaction. And so that has uh, some surprising pieces of research have come out of it. I'm sure you've heard of the Uncanny Valley. Yeah. uh, That's been argued at length by both roboticists and non-roboticists for decades now. Does it exist? And if so, how do you avoid falling into it? We're certainly aware that that's something that we need to work on. We've been solving it from a purely, say, biomechanics side to date, trying to get the robot to move as naturally as possible. And then from an interactivity or sort of a social cue standpoint. And so you started this in 2015. How much money have you raised? or who's, Who's backing you guys? Our lead investor for the Series A was uh, Playground Global. Our lead investor for Seed Round was Robotics Hub, and we've done a total of 8.8 million so far. We've been selling product early, so that was one of the lessons from my 3D scanner days was sell something as opposed to nothing as rapidly (laughs) as you possibly can because you're going to learn an awful lot. And so we sold our first robots within about nine months of turning on the lights. This is not meant meant to uh, be offensive, but who wants to buy a robot from a company that's less than a year old? Oh, I I can one-up you on the offensive. Who (laughs) wants to buy a robot that only has two legs and has no upper body or cameras from a company that's less than one year old? 
yeah, no, valid question. So um, we sold exclusively into R&D groups. The benefit of the robot was that it was physically capable of walking in a way that was a very close analogy to people. And in that sense, you know, if you were to compare apples to apples from what the commercial market had available in late 2016, early 2017, there were no other commercial humanoids on market at all. That was just the right volume for us because we needed to get our heads wrapped around how do you do support of a product like that, right? Given that it was a, at that point a completely new market, no one was buying walking robots. And what, what are the support frameworks you need to put in place? How do you handle uh, stocking parts? How do you handle the customer experience from a, you know, this is a not being provided to you under a grant. So you expect that if it, if it breaks, that you can say cross ship a replacement leg. So thinking through a lot of logistical things. Digit is the, the kind of the current iteration of this, of your, um, kind of humanoid robot. How many of those are out in the wild? Well, there. <laughs> this is the pre-COVID and post-COVID. So yeah, uh, yeah we, we had an um, announcement back at CES that Ford was our launch customer for it. Uh, we were going to be shipping to them at the end of Q1, which would have been you know, almost exactly two weeks ago. And unfortunately, those two are now sitting in shipping crates in Oregon. We have you know a, a delivery schedule through the end of the summer that you know we're starting at an annual, or a monthly rate of about two a month and then ramping after we get the first uh, you know, dozen, half, dozen, dozen and a half out the door. And are others, because I know obviously Tesla, for example, has been perhaps the most public about their plans for kind of turning their entire fleet into autonomous taxis, you know, whenever the software is ready or the regulations are ready. Have you been speaking to other car makers who also are looking at this as kind of converting their fleets into something other than just, you know, cars owned by a person who most of the time has them in their garage? Yeah, we've we've had conversations with other automakers. I would say we're we're viewing that because of the obvious regulatory and safety concerns about operating outdoors in an unconstrained environment as a bit more of a futurist five years and out kind of thing as opposed to the on-premises, you know, inside a warehouse or on a constrained piece of property where it's access controlled. So we're viewing that as a little bit more of a longer term set of conversations, but with a very high value add because right now there's no other good automation solution for it. And we're focusing in terms of the near-term deployments about uh, some partnerships that we haven't announced yet on the, the pure logistics side of things. Do you see a future where when I order my, you know, product X that is delivered, that'll be brought to my front door by a robot, that is just what will happen. That will be the kind of the reality. Do you see, do you see that as a potential or probable future? And if so, when? I would see it as an overwhelmingly likely future if you run the thought of experiment of as soon as a machine is demonstrably safer than a person from a you know accidents and meantime between failure for lack of a better word uh, that there'll be an enormous push to automate uh, the driving part of that task and so from a scaling perspective at that point once the vehicles are otherwise autonomous you have a choice of either maintaining the, the sort of the legacy position where the human is just there now as running back and forth at the door or automating that piece of it. Now, what I would say from our experience at my previous company is there's an awful lot of, let's say, ad hoc customer service that occurs as part of yeah. the interactions, particularly in a, in a business environment with someone who's sort of characterized as a delivery driver, but that's really not how we, we had the experience of interacting. Why are you able to make such a, a capable bipedal robot today, whereas, I don't know, 
say 10 years ago, that would have been very difficult and or impossible or just too expensive or whatever it may be? What's changed? Well, I mean, one thing is, you know, so cell phones exist, right? So yep. there's this enormous push for extremely low cost, extremely high power embedded processors. You know, so I've been in robotics now for about two decades. And the idea that you could get a, you know, a competent processor that would run on a watt or a watt and a half of power that you're going to pay $25 for is just a foreign concept to somebody, say, from even 2010, much less 2000. What would you have expected to pay or be able to kind of source? You know, could you give a sense of like, just, I don't know, in monetary terms or capability terms, what the difference is? Because I think a lot of people don't quite understand what the, the, the kind of the smartphone revolution has really done to this stuff. Yeah. So a good example would be on something like the motor amplifiers that we use. So first off, the motor amplifiers that we use are are assuming that a particular type of motor also exists with these you know, rare earth permanent magnets, mm-hmm. which is itself a relatively new piece of technology that the costs for that have been driven. If you have a say a washing machine or other appliance that says like inverter direct drive on it, that that really helps to drive a lot of the power electronics towards these smaller applications and away from a lot of where those motors were used, which were in, in very high power industrial applications. Okay. So they did exist, but then the question was, okay, so you're miniaturizing this. How do you handle the need to tell the motor what to do? Uh, a lot of those now use the arm style processors that are common in cell phones, as opposed to a big rack mount motor controller like you might have had in an industrial process, you know, even with, with Digit, which is, you know, quote unquote, only 20 degrees of freedom. So we don't have dexterous fingers or, or to- toes on it. So we have 20 motors and 20 amplifiers, shrinking all of that down, A, so that it physically fits in the robot, yeah. B, so that it doesn't pull thousands of watts while the robot's turned on, you know, thereby giving a battery life of you know, minutes or seconds, and, and C, that you can afford to buy it at all are all relatively recent things in the history of technology. So if you wanted to make a robot of that capability 10 years ago, how much would it cost you? Or would it even be possible? I guess it doesn't sound like it would be. It certainly was possible running it on a tether. And so if you look at early Boston Dynamics work, like with Petman, or early versions of the Honda Osimo robot, it was possible to do it in the case of, of Osimo going at slower speeds or in the case of the early Boston Dynamics robots running it on a tether. When you did that, where you remove the computing and the power requirements from existing on the robot, then the mechanical pieces did exist. You know, as a best order of magnitude guess, uh, those were between a factor of 10 and a factor of 20 more expensive than what we're doing with Digit right now for something that had an offboard requirement. Now, they've since shrunk that down. You know, the improvements that they've made with the spot robot are, are amazing. You know, we have a lot of friends, uh, both academically and personally, who, who work there. And, you know, it's, it's you know, sort of a, friend, a friendly rivalry to the extent that it exists as a rivalry at all. Yeah, and so as a best guess, you know, 10 years ago, you would have had the power off board, you would have had the computer off board, and it would have cost somewhere between 10 and 20 times what we're doing. Say in, the, in, in this example, you know, it's going to deliver my package to my front door, which is up four, it's up a curb and four steps from you know, the street. How does it work? Is there some kind of QR code it scans to know which box is mine? And like, you know, how does that, what's the technology there? How does it get from the car, pick the right box, drop it on my door and get back in? Yeah. So initially with those kinds of trials, it's going to be entirely opt-in from a consumer perspective. So you're not going to have a robot show up 
when you're not <laughs> expecting it. And it's very much a, a, a case where early on, we're going to be pre-mapping environments on an opt-in basis, like what most of the practical autonomous car companies have done with their tests. It's geofenced. They know exactly right. where all the roads are, what to expect, and we'll be doing the same thing for our, our test program. Now, in terms of the recognizing the box part of it, fortunately, that's relatively straightforward. It's hard to make a human-readable box work, but from a machine-reading standpoint, you know, we already have uh, QR or other you know, geometric code processing modules built on the robot. Right. So it's relatively straightforward for the robot to just know at a glance what it's grabbing. Um, that, that also extends to things like size and weight. So that's one of the things people always want to know is, well, how does it know how much the box weighs? Well, we can sense it the same way you would, which is you pick it up and, okay, you try a little bit more, yeah. so it must be heavier. But given that you know, virtually all modern logistics systems know to within a couple millimeters and you know, fractions of a kilogram, the size and the weight of the package, the robot can know that as a glance before it starts to get the package up. And why didn't you give it, and this is probably practical reasons, but... It doesn't have fingers or opposable thumbs. Yeah, so th that's not a wish list thing. That's just a we knew we were going to be falling a lot with the early versions of the robot, and you know, just like with with humans, when you fall, the first thing you break is your hand, and the second thing is your radius bone in your forearm. It has sort of approximately the physical capabilities of what you would, as a person, have if you're wearing sort of stiff boxing gloves. From a safety profile standpoint, that also you know limits the peak force that the robot can apply on the on the world that you, you know, have these sort of softer, larger end effectors. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, Things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. How strong is it? Um, so it can lift. We designed it in the original. So there's a, a term from government contracting called CONOPS, so concept of operations. So that's when management gets together and writes down what they'd like to have, and then you hand that to the engineers, and they say, this is crazy. Here's what you can have. That was kind of the negotiation process. So we pulled statistics from a bunch of different sources, so OSHA, job requirements, Marine Corps fitness standards, because it turns out they've tested at length, how fast you can walk, how much you can carry. So uh, it was designed against a nominal payload of about 40 pounds. The actual number that the engineers are 
comfortable quoting is a little bit less than that, 15 to 20 kilograms. But it was designed for about what a person can do uh, as driven by job site requirements. Now, you know, interestingly, a lot of employers do violate sort of a strict interpretation. Of yeah. You're supposed to team lift things above 40 pounds, but there are a lot of places that you know the team lift threshold is in the 70 to 90 pound range. So we're, we're going for sort of a median human performance, but not super human. Is there something, I mean, there's got to be um, some kind of military application here. Is that something also you guys are contemplating or working on, or do you have any kind of red lines you will or will not cross? We do, yeah. So the original funding for uh, the series of robots prior to Digit was funded by DARPA. And the company has taken a little bit of DARPA money, but certainly you know a small percentage of the overall development costs. There's a, a really a complicated question to ask, which is, do you abstractly want or don't want robotics or automation in military roles? The red line that we've drawn is that we're happy to work with the military on roles that the robot is not carrying either lethal or non-lethal weapons. And so we've drawn a line, say, differently say, from the robots that, you know, there's a number of different track vehicles that were deployed over the last 15 years mm. uh, that had non-lethal or semi-lethal weapons for doing IED disposal. You know, usually a little shotgun cartridge that would, you know, blow up the roadside bomb kind of thing. For us, we were uncomfortable crossing that line because that was too easy to imagine converting to yeah. some other role. So very early in the history of the company, we had the policy that we would do military work, but only in non-combat or unarmed roles. The question that was kind of our thought experiment was, how do we save the most lives if and when robots are used in military applications? A conversation we had with uh, some people in, in DARPA about a year ago was, like, hypothetically, you have a ground infantry team uh, with and without a robot, and they have to go through a door in some combat scenario. What is the least risk to both people who are on on premises, you know, the people who live in the building, and then the the, uh, the infantry team? And overwhelmingly, sending an unarmed robot in just to see what's going on is safest for the occupants and also safest for the, uh, the U.S. military personnel. Because the robot, of course, is not afraid for its life. You don't have to arm the robot. Effectively using a robot as almost cannon fodder. Cannon fodder, or in most cases, right, I think a, a misunderstanding that that I probably had, I would assume other people have had too, is that overwhelmingly the vast, vast, vast majority of people that we've talked to both in the U.S. military uh, as active duty and, and non-active duty are very conscious of the huge responsibility that it comes from being an armed combatant in an otherwise civilian environment. They take that job role extremely seriously. Uh, they're not trigger happy and, and are exceptionally, you know, in some cases at great personal risk uh, careful to not involve non-combatants in situations. So if yeah. you're in a, say, an urban warfare situation, it's not that it's cannon fodder. It's that most of the time, most people around you don't mean you ill will. And it's just very hard to sort out who is the, you know, quote-unquote enemy in that situation. I mean, if you have a very capable robot which has arms and legs, if the Pentagon says, yeah, we'd like a thousand of those. And then, you know, there are smart people in the Pentagon, et cetera. Couldn't they just figure out ways to use it how they see fit? You can handle that contractually. So it's similar to the restrictions that we've placed on the R&D robots to date, where, you know, the a related but, you know, parallel question is how do you ensure that someone who's purchasing your robot for R&D use isn't going to get 
overexcited as say grad students are prone <laughs> to get, and and, and very in a very well-meaning fashion, say take it to a kindergarten and be enthusiastically giving robot demos, but then you know have have something happen that's right. uh, at best bad press and at worst hurts somebody. And so we just handled that contractually, saying like, look, here is what safe operations mean. You're going to agree as part of the purchase order that this is what it means, and you know here are the consequences of not following it. So, you know, I, I think this is. It's a very important question to ask, but it's not complicated to get around any more so than any other vendor relationship with the military. They tend to respect that kind of stuff pretty well. And then finally, just on the kind of the robot operating out in the world, you talk about initially it's going to have to be geofenced, et cetera. So presumably at some point, this is going to have to be capable of just like it shows up at somebody's house, wherever it may be. And know how to get around without having been there before, having it fenced before, having it kind of interpreted before. Again, that goes back to, I guess, the, the software issue, or is it a computer vision issue? Is it all of that together? And how how squareable is that circle? In the short term, I would say it would be challenging if that were a immediate go-to-market goal for us. And and that just it's one of the many reasons, you know, the, the most important one is safety, but among many of the technical reasons, the the fact that you run into interesting, weird edge cases in, in the outdoor world is why we're focusing on the indoor applications first. What I would say gives me hope in terms of uh, solving it is the trend towards cloud computation more generally, and you know, sort of the edge computing for robotics more specifically, that provided that the robot has the ability to, say, run or execute a classifier or run or execute a trained reinforcement learning network, the actual process of doing the training tends to be overwhelmingly the more computationally intensive part of that. Uh, and this is an approach... I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not an AI engineer, but uh, that I understand Tesla has been doing with their uh, system is saying... Uh, okay, we know that the autonomy computers around the Model 3 are not capable of training their own network. So we're going to set them up to look for inter- a particular class of interesting edge cases and then push that data stack back You know, at 2 in the morning when the car is off the road, push that lump of data back to Tesla's servers. They chew on that for a while, retrain all their networks, and then and push those back down to the vehicles. So over time, as you start to operate the kind of fleet, you would start off in a geofenced environment doing only known operations. You would then allow that to expand to a case where you have, say, a human in the loop answering questions, sort of a robot tech support. Hey, I don't know if this is a door or not. Sort of a captcha, click here if you see a door. Gradually progress over time to the point where that's being trained uh, in a bit more of an autonomous fashion. And I think the good news with this is we don't have to reinvent the deployment process. You know, companies like Waymo, uh, Tesla, Cruise, and, and others have shown how you go through this test program. First, you do geofenced, highly restricted tests on a you know, closed course. And yeah. You push that at, at a small city scale, but only in a subset of it that you've remapped, and then so on. So I think there's a lot that can be learned and inferred from that process that will apply to this. Uh, you know, the, the edge cases are weirder because, of course, the the things that constitute a drivable road are a smaller subset of, of the environment in which you can walk on with feet. But in terms of the practical deployment, I don't see a lot of difference there from the overall procedure that you would take. And then just kind of going back to very much where we started in an era of COVID and or pandemics, it's fair to say that you have seen a kind of a lot more interest all of a sudden, things that can't get sick. And can't put and kind of keep people out, out of harm's way. 
Right. Yeah. And if you add up the number of logistics positions that just Amazon, Walmart, and Instacart announced that they were trying to hire for about 40 days ago, that's 550,000 people. And that's just for those three companies. Irrespective of the risk that those people are taking personally in the environment that we're in now, there's a question of what happens when things go back to whatever the new normal is. Do you turn around and let those people go? Is this capacity that we're now building that will never go away because fundamental consumer demand has shifted? Or is it lumpier? I would say the concern that I would have from a social situation Mm -hmm. is that this is lumpy in the sense that what we're seeing is that the system needs to be more flexible than it is. You know, sort of the argument for volunteer firefighters, right? So for small communities where you can't afford to pay a full-time firefighting staff, you know, analogously to you don't need to have, you know, at all times a half million delivery workers, uh, how do you handle these peak surges in demand for the job role? My expectation is, again, all of this was just embedded in the beginnings of, you know, what seems, you know, old hat, like you think of, oh, of course I have Amazon Prime. Well, I mean, Amazon Prime hasn't been around for that long. So the expectation that I would just decide... So we do a lot of gardening. I, the expectation that I would decide that I need a, a heat mat for starting my plant seedlings and that I would expect to have that 36 hours from now is a, a very modern yes. personal assumptions. So ir- irrespective of the, the surge demand around COVID, I don't know that I see that going away, that aspect of it. Uh, but the question of whether, you know, once things are back to normal, whether anybody wants to work in that job role, you know, given, say, where we were even eight weeks ago. Um, yeah. It's not like there was either a lot of excess capacity in those systems or a lot of people who were clamoring to go work in a warehouse or a delivery environment. Um, so we'll see. You know, I would say it has, you know, again, to get back to the, the dull, dirty, dangerous stuff, we saw this with you know, a lot of industrial processes that used to be really dangerous, where the demand wasn't there and then coal was something that you used to make steel in low volumes in the early 1800s. And then industrialization took off. You know, you had many, many hundreds of thousands of coal miners, which created, you know, black lung and all the other problems. You know, as someone who was born in West Virginia, I'm well aware of the, you know, social and economic problems that were associated with earlier implementations of the mining industry. And it seems like we're seeing something very similar now where you do need to introduce enough automation into the process to make it safe for the people to do. And what COVID has forced asking the question about is, is the mere process of touching and interacting with thousands of things, you know, physical objects, and then hundreds and hundreds of people, is that by itself a materially unsafe thing to do in a denser world? I, I, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist. My, my gut would be yes, in the same way that, you know, working underground in a coal mine without automation was, you know, a dangerous job. Um, I think that's something that, you know, would be clearer in hindsight than it is in foresight. But Certainly the, the demand, demand to make the, ignoring all the other questions, yeah. can we make the job safer for a person by introducing automation into the system? The answer is yes. So then the question is, you know, what is the right rollout on that once you have it? My last question, what was your worst day at work? Worst day at work? Um, you know, we've gone through cases where it looked like we had, <laughs> I, I don't know if this is worst day or worst days. Um <laughs> Certainly with agility, we've gone through a number of cases where it looked like there was a, a very serious show-stopping bug that was introduced uh, either from a technical standpoint or since you know we have been building and shipping product from a product standpoint. 
if you bake a, a bug into software, it might make the news, but it's possible to go back, you know, like we've seen with you know, what Zoom has been having to deal with, but you can fix it pretty quickly, right? But if you bake the problem into physical hardware, it's more along the lines of a, an automobile recall kind of problem. Fortunately, we've gotten through all of that up to this point. If you've leaned yourself out appropriately, there's always a question whether, you know, there's going to be some snafu that yeah. rears its ugly head as a result of, you know, hardware being hard and, you know, the other sort of Silicon Valley kind of truisms. So, yeah, I'd say there have been at least three or four good ones without getting into details that have, have caused us to lose some sleep. You know, fortunately, in the, in the genre of my problems are I care too much, I try too hard. And so I, I would say a lot of those have, have fortunately been pretty good learning things for us too, which yeah. is our argument for selling robots. So an example of one that actually cost us some money, we have a, a custom transmission on the robot where there was a bug that got introduced into an early version of that on the Cassie robots that ship. And so we went to our early launch customers and said, hey, it's going to cost us, we didn't tell them the dollar amount, but it was something along the lines of five or $6,000 per robot to go through and refurb them. And so we brought all the robots back at the one-year point after they had been shipped and then had the opportunity to actually do teardowns, you know, a lot like what you would do, say, back in the days when it was possible to repair car engines. And so there was a lot we learned from that process. You know, it, it was, in some sense, a negative outcome and that it cost us some money to do it. But, you know, if, if you spin it the right way, anything's a learning opportunity. Well, look, well, good luck with it all. Um, it's, it sounds all very difficult, but uh, potentially very exciting. Yeah, we're having fun with it. Um, it's it's nice that we're through the phase of sort of willing the robot into existence and moving on <laughs> to the point where the remaining problems, you know, not to minimize the complexity of it, but because you can iterate faster on software, I think a lot of the, the changes that we've seen, you know, just in the last six months as we've been wrapping up Digit, the benefits of having the stable hardware are really starting to pay off uh, from a software development standpoint. And uh, we're excited to be getting these out at scale uh, working with partners and, and showing some cool stuff. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Damien for taking the time. Robots are coming, y'all. I know we talk about that all the time, and it feels like they've been kind of, quote-unquote, coming for us for a long time. But um, you see this stuff, and it's like, well, it's all, you know, it's going to happen at some point. Who knows how long it's going to take to kind of bridge that final gap. Please, I have a request take a moment if you are enjoying the show give a rating and review you know i'm gonna ask um it does help other people find the show i really like it getting the feedback or you can also just uh, find me on twitter at danny fortson or you can email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk that is all until later this week where we will have another fabulous podcast for you until then stay safe Stay sane. Bye-bye.